Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Lighting the Pipes. Thank you for joining us on this little Sherlock Selects session for the summer, which Josh and myself, Scott, are doing in between our bigger reads. And today we're going to reintroduce the adventure of the cardboard box. Yeah, centering around domestic violence in some way. Uh, mm-hmm. A murder being the result of uh, domestic violence but other factors involved as well that led to it happening. And when we came across this story, The Adventure of the Cardboard Box, we were quite struck, weren't we, Josh, by not just sort of the standout graphic nature of it, which attracted attention from the censors back during publication, yeah. and all, and which we, we get into in the episode, and which also um, kind of led to this really interesting moment for Sherlock Holmes at the end of the story, where, without giving too much away... He has this sort of challenging, conflicted moment talking to Watson, trying to figure out what's behind a crime of passion. Like, his brain can't Mm -hmm. really understand that. The logic of it. Yeah, he doesn't understand crimes of passion, yeah. And I think one of the things that perhaps frustrates Sherlock the most in this story isn't that he can solve the mystery, but instead that he just doesn't understand the motive behind an emotional response and it's really telling of the character this is some really good deft character writing i think suggested here by conan doyle at the end of the story it's conan doyle i think being aware about what's going on if you think about it like i mean of the jack the ripper he was very aware of grisly Mm -hmm. crimes that did go on in london at the time and that were being recorded and of course for the audiences you have to center that down and even, sure. But the idea of, you know, getting the two ears in the box, I mean, it was probably quite yeah. graphic for the time period and even kind of, you know, referential to some of the Penny Dreadfuls that were being published at the time. Uh, I mean, it's not mm-hmm. Gwyneth Paltrow's head in a box. I mean, we haven't got to that point yet in terms of <laughs> how the murder no. mystery evolved. But no. at the same time, in the age where Amazon deliveries are all over the place, you know, this is the worst Amazon delivery ever. <laughs> <laughs> Because the package got to the wrong person, right? <laughs> it did. It really did. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a great point. It's kind of the beginning, I would say, of this kind of, of the idea of the murder mystery becoming much more disturbing and getting closer to its horror uh, origins like it did with Poe, for yeah. example. Yeah, yeah I, think, I think that's quite right. You know, Conan Doyle himself suppressed publication of this story in the memoirs of Sherlock Holmes, the second full collection of short stories. But if you can get your hands on an American edition of the memoirs, you will still find it in there. So it's quite a pricey little volume, that. Yeah, you got to find it in the last bow. That's where I, that's where mm-hmm. I have it. That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I remember when we recorded this, um, we were a little off kilter. I remember that you, uh, <laughs> you, you didn't know you had to read it because we were looking at the difference between UK and American editions of the book. Yeah, I remember that. That was fun. Yeah, but you know, this this story, I really enjoyed it when we, we read it. It was fun to talk about it and to do the context and sort of the, the history and the looking into it. Uh, I know we, we delved into Klinger's annotations quite enthusiastically, and I just really enjoyed this story. And I, I'm really glad that we're resurrecting our earlier mm. chat on it today and brushing off its dust so that so that we can present it to uh, to listeners as they wait for our episode on Ellis Peters' A Morbid Taste for Bones, which is coming soon. Mm -hmm. Coming soon, very soon. And uh, another one coming soon after that as well. Uh, We'll we'll have a chock Mm -hmm. full of uh, different mystery authors, uh, different detective characters for you to sample. And uh, if you're a fan of them already, great. But um, if, if you're not a fan and you're curious to see what they're like, well, we'll give you a brief taste on what we think. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it should be a lot of fun. So without belaboring the point, we're really proud to represent our, our earlier discussion on the adventure of the cardboard box from a few years ago. We think this is a, a really nice filler as you guys are waiting for our big episode on Ellis Peters. Yeah, I agree. Why don't we move on to the second story published in January 1893, The Adventure of the Cardboard Box. It was not published in the first British edition of the memoirs of Sherlock Holmes, but it was published in the American edition, though it was quickly removed because of its controversial subject matter. We've already touched upon that. The story was later published again in American editions of His Last Bow, which is why you and I were at different intervals with this. But let the record show that from now on, We are reading these stories in the chronological order they were written, not the way that publications or compilations have arranged them. We cool with that? We're cool with that. All right, great. So, moving on. When the cardboard box was removed from publication, Conan Doyle moved a passage from it um, that showed this mind reading that Holmes does of Watson at the very beginning to a different story called The Adventure of the Resident Patient. And he later then moves it back it's very strange the way that this, this excerpt comes, like a part of the story was cut out and then was returned to the story, and then another part was cut out and left out. Uh, well, I guess we'll talk about that when we, when we talk about the investigation. Yeah. Anyway, some critics believe that this story was a really risky one to write for Conan Doyle, given the subject nature of adultery and murder. It was left out of reprints for different intervals of time, meeting most censorship in the USA, where a first edition of the memoirs carried the story without knowledge of the severity of public opinion in the UK, forcing to omit it for upcoming editions. Hence, a first American edition of the memoirs is a very valuable thing. If you can find one over there, buddy, at a flea sale, pick one up, because the first edition contains the story, whereas all the subsequent ones does not. Ah. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. Anyway, uh, despite trawling, as I said earlier, trawling the depths of the internet, uh, short of paying for academic journals and microfilm, I, I really couldn't find literary criticism for, for this story existing, really, from when it first appeared in The Strand. It's surprising to me how crazy that is, given the Victorians' interest in the high celebrity. You know, if if Doyle and Holmes were as high celebrity as you know the selling and publication of Strand seems to seems to suggest, and the money he was making would seem to suggest, then you think there would be some free material still existing out there that would have seeped into our media concerning this story. But no, nah, I couldn't find any. But what I did find. It is a 2009 New York Times article which deals with the memoirs broadly, and in it, this is what Lisa Sanders writes about Holmes and his behavior in this and the story we read earlier and the ones we're going to read furthermore. It says this, which I found was cool because we were talking about Asperger's Syndrome. He has symptoms of Asperger's Syndrome. He appears oblivious to the rhythms and courtesies of normal social intercourse. He doesn't converse so much as he does lecture. His interests and knowledge are deep but narrow. He's strangely cold-blooded, perhaps as a consequence he's also alone in the world. He has no friends other than the extremely tolerant Watson, a brother, even stranger and more isolated than he is his only family. Was Conan Doyle presenting some sort of genetically transmitted personality disorder or mental illness that he'd observed? Or was Sherlock Holmes merely an interesting character created from such scratch? Huh, interesting. 
And if you think about it, the modern interpretations of Sherlock Holmes, I mean, the one that Benedict Cumberbatch does is definitely someone on, on the spectrum for sure. Totally, yeah. And we've talked about that before, and we will talk about it again. There's definitely evidence in the source material for that reading. Let's uh, get into your outline there, my friend. All right, so the adventure of the cardboard box. As the late summer heat suffocates the great city of London, Watson and Holmes seek refuge inside the blind-drawn room of their Baker Street man cave. Curled on the sofa, Holmes plays at telepathy while Watson weathers the 90-degree heat with the metal of an experienced soldier. Holmes has been cordially invited by Inspector Lestrade to weigh in on a curious case that is puzzling Scotland Yard and directs Watson's attention to a small paragraph in the paper outlining the details. It would appear that Miss Sarah Cushing of Croydon was recently made victim of a horrible practical joke when, upon checking her mail, she discovered a neat little cardboard box addressed to an S. Cushing containing two human ears, one male and one female. Police believe that the package was sent from Belfast by ex-lodgers of Miss Cushing, medical students who she had turfed out for their rowdy frat parties and keggers back in the day. After changing mm-hmm. costumes, the dynamic duo hire a cab and brave the heat to visit Lestrade at the scene of the prank. Packed in coarse salt and frayed at the edges, Holmes is quick to observe the roughness of the packaged ears. He immediately dismisses the likelihood of it coming from Cushing's previous medical student lodgers, sensing that their accuracy with surgical equipment would have made a cleaner job of the cut. Moreover, a spelling mistake and the unique knot tied in securing the box encourages Holmes to suppose that it was sent by an uneducated sailor, or at least someone with knowledge of rigging and ropes. His spidey sense tells him right off that this is less a sick, youthful prank and more a serious crime, likely a double murder. He speaks Mm. with Susan, who by now is fed up with questions and police presence in her home. Nevertheless, she soon comes around to Holmes and his charms. Watson observes of her that, quote, Like most people who lead a lonely life, she was very shy at first, but ended by becoming extremely communicative. Miss Cushing gives Holmes pretty much all the detail he needs to work out the mystery. Most telling are the troublesome details of marriage between James Browner and Susan's sister, Mary, and the meddlesome behavior of the other sister, Sarah. After a quick cable to Liverpool and a house call to Sarah Cushing, Susan's brain-fevering sister, Holmes and Watson power up in the pub over a bottle of claret and a pleasant little lunch where they talk of violins and the great Paganini. So quick was his absorption and computation of information that he tells Lestrade at the station he'd prefer to be left out of dispatches because this case wasn't really difficult enough for him to be complimented. Adding insult to injury a gesture of some pleasure for our boy. He hands the disillusioned inspector one of his cards with the culprit's name scribbled on it, but instructs him that he won't be able to get an arrest until the next evening. Holmes later confesses to Watson that the case was an easy one because it depended on, quote, backward reasoning, and it wasn't complicated by concurrent twists or future evidence. Doyle then offers the trusty ventriloquist's performance so that Watson, we, the reader, can be told how this chain of backward reasoning led to his certainty of James Browner being the murderer and of the two ears belonging to Jim's adulterous wife and lover. His suspicions and resourcefulness are confirmed when a letter from Lestrade fills in the rest of the blanks. Upon its arrival into dock, the SS Mayday was boarded by police and Sailor Jim did nothing to resist questioning on arrest. In fact, He handed out his arms in supplication and confessed in a lengthy detail the story of his alcoholism, revenge, and murder. We learn from Browner's verbatim statement that it all started as the story of three sisters, kind of like the Chekhov play, but instead of a climactic duel over a woman, there's bludgeoning in a boat born out of jealousy and rage. You see, after marrying his true love Mary, in all Liverpool there was no better woman, he states, her sister Sarah came to visit, 
and started to play vile temptress upon his dutiful sailor's heart. And one fateful afternoon, when his wife was away, Browner shunned Sarah's advances, and though she brushed it off casually, she'd never truly get over the rejection, and she began plotting to take revenge on him, or perhaps to turn him towards her, twistedly, by getting Mary's eyes to turn elsewhere. By introducing her to one Alec Fairbairn, a dashing, swaggering chap who made friends wherever he went, Sarah orchestrated an adulterous affair that soon had Browner chasing his wife and her secrets around when he returned home from sea, instead of bumping uglies between the sails like good reuniting couples. Before long, Mary was seeing Alec regularly, and the last embers of love between her and Jim had gone. Sarah's plan had worked. Well, sort of. In a portentous argument set to poach the white elephant out of the room, Browner fiercely promised Sarah that he would send her one of Fairbairn's ears if he ever showed up at his house in pursuit of his wife. The marriage is reclaimed resignedly, and a new status quo of austerity is wedged into their home. Frightened by the threats against her by Browner, meddlesome Sarah eventually moved back down to London, having failed to make a living in Liverpool, hosting sailors in her own domicile. Now, back in the capital, Sarah stayed for a time with her sister Susan. True to his word, when he rushed home some weeks later to surprise his wife with 12 hours of unexpected shore leave, a stupid, pitiable move for a man who knows that his wife is unfaithful, yet one which nevertheless lets us see his love. She isn't there. Doesn't take him long to discover her at the side of Alec Fairbank. The red mist falls, and with heavy club in hand, he follows the unsuspecting couple to New Brighton, a seaside resort at the mouth of the Mersey, just outside Liverpool. There, Browner follows them through the fairground and onto the beach, where they hire a boat. He does the same, and much more skilled in skiffs than they are, he soon overtakes them. Under the blanketed security of a hazy mist, he proceeds to board their paltry vessel and beats him to death. He cuts free his barbaric prizes before sending the two bodies to Davy Jones's locker in what is definitely the most unsettling crime of passion that we have yet received in a home story. Sailor Jim cleans himself up and returns to work aboard the Mayday before posting the ears later from Belfast. This is how the gruesome parcel, addressed only with an S, makes its ambiguous appearance in Croydon, and how Holmes knows to tell Lestrade that he won't be able to get Browner on the murder until his boat comes back to dock. Though successful in solving the mystery of the cardboard box, Holmes is nevertheless perplexed. He asks Watson, quote, What object is served by this circle of misery and violence and fear? End quote. The disorder of passionate crime doesn't really jive with his fundamentalist view of logical behavior, even for a criminal. He just can't accept red mist or rage as a motive. The whole affair is repugnant to the sanctity of marriage and law in equal measure. And for all his objective claims and calculating insights, Holmes lacks the existential, Herzogian view of humans as chaotic, passionate beings. The story ends curiously, with Sherlock reaching out to his partner for understanding in a scene not dissimilar to so many Captain Kirk moments. If only Watson were a more suitable Spock, he might have gained some closure. <laughs> Nice. There you go. So let's look at the uh, the pipes. We got our principles, our investigation, our perpetrator, our environment, and our supporting cast. So the principles. I found Watson was kind of clueless in this story. <laughs> it's so much that Holmes doesn't even have to talk to him. He just has to read his mind instead. <laughs> uh, seriously. Um, his his kind of cavalier approach to the case was a bit disconcerting as to me enjoying his character, but I found he did, did kind of have an about face when he realized, you know, these ears that he's finding, he goes very grave, you know, when he realizes that a terrible crime has been committed. So that kind of sold me on his mannerisms. At the same time, 
the way that he approached the case and then he wanted to dismiss it uh, immediately after he knew there was a murder committed, uh, it, it could be seen as kind of like a symptom of autism, I suppose, not having that emotional connection. It could also be sort of some sort of like in a kind of ingrained defense mechanism against such atrocity so that he just writes it off, you know? Um, there is a kind of, I think, a argument for that. That's um, interesting. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, and then again, he was disturbed by Browning's confession and the actions that people do. But was he also, there's a good ambiguity to the sense, was he concerned with the actions of what Browning did and he was disturbed by it in that way? Or he was horrified by it? Or was he more or less just didn't understand it because it was just more human emotion, right? That red mist you're talking about. Hmm. So I, I give the dynamic duo because I found Holmes was kind of interesting in, in, in this storyline. And I give, it a, a, I give it a solid four, maybe a little generous. But Holmes, I found, presented an interesting version of himself in this one. So I, I give it a four. He did, and I gave it a four as well. I agree 100% with what you said about Watson, particularly noticeable after the Silver Blaze, reading this story, uh, as I did in sequence. I know you were kind of a couple behind because you went the other way, but um, I, I found that, yeah, like Watson was so sharp and he was so involved last time. Here he's just kind of, it's almost like he's disgusted by the, the, the murder of it. And he, he never says he is, but... You know, it's it, it would be an explanation at least. Like he's shocked um, by the murder, and so he he kind of takes a back foot and just follows his pal around. Yes, I don't I don't know if that if that's entirely fair, but that, that's how it felt anyway. Um, Holmes, particularly at the, at the end, is is really curious. I did like the fact that we got another violin chat and another moment of him switching off his mind because, as far as he was concerned, he was done until the apprehension of the criminal. I liked that. But again, you got that that ambiguity, though. Like, was he just turned it off because he was done? Or was he going into Paganini and high culture and violin music because that's how he escapes from these disturbing things? Like, there's, I think there's a, there's an argument for that there is a a possibility, you know, of a gray area of whether or not is he just, you know, high cold, functioning yeah. or, and co or just cold or, or is he simply just trying to repress, you know, these, uh, these disturbing feelings? Mm-hmm. That's a good observation. I, I I don't know. It's a question for, it's a question for the critics. It's a question for the readers. I think he's not bothered by this. Myself personally, um, mm. I think Watson is, and maybe he senses something in his friend that makes him go have a bottle of wine and a nice lunch. But he That's does a possibility he, too. He doesn't want anything to do with this case. He doesn't want his name mentioned in dispatch, right? So. Of course, you could also say that he doesn't want a reminder of it if you wanted to look at it from the position that you're arguing. But anyway, I went for four with this. But I found that the ending was really interesting, this story. I liked, I liked, the, I liked the complexity that we get of Holmes' character here and his, his frustrations in trying to understand people. Um, this is a great, great conversation they're having at the end. Um, it ends. It ends very quickly. But after the big info dropped uh, verbatim uh, statement by Browner when he's arrested, we have we have him asking, you know, what object is served by the circle of misery and violence and fear? It must tend to some end, or else our universe is ruled by chance, which is unthinkable. But what end? There's a great standing perennial problem to which human reason is as far from an answer as ever. 
And I found this really cool in contemporary, sorry, in modern context as well, where you've got things like chaos theory that, and I don't know, you know, I apologize for my ignorance. I don't know the root or the history of chaos theory, but I do certainly know that uh, understanding the world in terms of disorder has become far more fashionable. And uh, philosophically, you got directors like Werner Herzog, which is why I referenced him in my outline, who do a lot of their work mm-hmm. around chaos oh. and and like um, equilibrium and stuff like that. Holmes seems incapable of understanding this case, and it obviously irks him. It really bothers him that okay, yeah, he solved the case, but he didn't solve the reason. And I think that kind of like the reason of passion, he doesn't understand how it couldn't have ended differently. Like, I don't think he's crying for the wasted life necessarily, or he's trying to distance himself from it, but he wants to know why Browner had the red mist. He wants to know why there was the rage, the chaos, the disorder in his personality that led him to Mm. drinking, why there was a lack of control. Like he's disgusted by it as much as he's drawn to it. And I think that that's a real complication for him. And it's a complexity perhaps we have seen before, but it's never been as clearly stated out in a rhetorical question the way we get it here. And you notice, too, is that when he says, what is the meaning of it, Watson, the next line is, said Holmes solemnly, mm-hmm. solemnly, as he down the paper. So it's not an act of frustration or anger that he responds to it, or any kind of, like, spastic response. He just lays the paper down, and he just kind of just, like, shakes his head, like... Mm-hmm. It's bothering him. You know what I mean? Anyway, I like that. Him, but not I in the sense that, cool. that we think... Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. I went, I went for a four with perpetrators. I thought they were good, even though the... Uh, investigative side of or sorry of principles even though the investigative side of them it was kind of lame but I still thought that they were interesting in this uh, Holmes more than Watson yes so yeah I went for a four which that's I why think, I gave it a four yeah but as you pointed out that's it's still a generous mark for a story where Watson has very little agency in the, if the category is called principles and we're dealing with their dynamic that's duo right. yes yeah. it is uh, anyway, let's move on to investigation. Uh, what did you think of this story stylistically, structurally? Did you like... I mean, I feel like we've read this story before in terms of its formula. We get the big statement like we got at the end um, of Study in Scarlet. We get... Which kind of wraps everything up and explains it all. And we get Holmes working heavily at the beginning, but not really anywhere else. I feel like the structure of this story uh, is kind of cardboard cutout, if you pardon the pun. Yeah, it's kind of like you go back to the sign of four, right? It relied on the confession in the end to put everything together. Uh, yes, it yeah. was a good setup, you know, with Susan Cushing, the ominous box. I guess kind of was uh, the ominous box. It just kind of did that. Kind of reminded me of two things. Historically, it reminded me of like the kidney that Jack the Ripper sent Scotland Yard at the time, mm. which would have been around that time too, right? Then you also have, you know, of course, David Fincher's Seven, the famous head in the box scene. Uh, it reminded me of the stuff of modern thrillers in that way and of course even poe is referenced um i think his observations with the sailors not how doyle writes his interest in the case in a cryptic alluring fashion it propels the narrative uh so that even if we're confused at these inquiries he was making we like watson are not utterly lost when the confession from browner explains everything in the end but again Mm -hmm. as you mentioned we've seen this type of story before the setup the mystery the kind of the little droplets of cues along the way, and then of course you get sort of the or droppings of cue of clues along the way would be a better way to phrase it, and then of course we have the confession, and I think the confession was a lot 
I like this confession by Browner more than I liked, for example, Jonathan Small's confession at the end of Sign of Four, because there was something, even though what Browner did was terrible, there was something very honest and human about how it was presented. And I found that refreshing. So I'm going to give the investigation a, a full four on this one. Yeah, um, I agree with what you're saying. There is a more human element to this confession, although it's a little bit smaller than what we got in the novel. And I think part of that reason is because there's a remorse and there's there's um, guilt here, whereas before there was just a sense of relief, like, okay, I've done my job, now my heart can explode in my chest and I'll die. Um, in this one, he knows that he's going to be hung or he's going to be imprisoned and he's remorseful because he knows what he's done is wrong, but he's a man who's not just on a simple mission of revenge. He's a man who's on a mission of revenge while dealing with alcoholism, while dealing with uh, this feeling that he is deserved something, not just like a big rescue Superman mission, you know? It, there's something more complex here in the statement that, that warrants a more human environmental response. I agree with everything you've said there about that. So... The investigation, I did feel a little bit differently than you. Um, not majorly, though, it has to be said. So I liked reading the formula again, even though it was a formula and I knew what we were going to get. I liked it that Holmes had his little moment of, no, don't even bother this. I love the, the Lestat moments here. Uh, I like the Lestat, Lestrade moments. <laughs> yeah. Um, much like I enjoyed the Lestrade moments in, uh, I don't remember what story. Oh yes, I do remember what story it is. The, the one with Hattie Doran, um, the noble bachelor. No I like the Lestrade moments there as well. I found them quite acute and I love the, you know, the little expressions that Lestrade has where he thinks he's, he's won the lottery and getting one over and he doesn't really. And then when Holmes, Holmes gives him the, his own business card with the name of the killer on the back. I thought that was kind of cool. I know that these guys have got a long-standing relationship, but it's always nice to see them duke it out. Um, so that part of the investigation was 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 cool. I enjoyed that. Um, yeah, in terms of my scoring, um, I went for a four on investigation as well. Structurally, you know, it is a lot like what we what we've seen before. But it's sound. Yeah, it's sound. A lot of info drop at the end, but it is sound, and it's a formula that works for me, so I went for a four as well. I enjoyed this story, reading it. I, f I was engaged. In the way of how they say, you know, a, a story is only as good as its villain, and I think that really pertains to this story. Uh, even though I gave the perpetrator 3.5, you know, he is a POS, you know, despite his protestations of being led this way by Sarah, who is a piece of work herself. Mm-hmm. Um, Maybe she saw something in him that he had not yet yet to discover. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And, but even though, of course, she does have her own nefarious m motivations, what's for going on? I still don't think that her or her sister deserve that fate in that way, right? No one does. Um, he is a bit of a trope, I think, nowadays. Maybe not as much as he was back then, but definitely nowadays. Uh, okay. I like that he controlled. He was controlled by his passion, and he wasn't really evil. And he was also prepared to accept the consequences of his actions, regardless of what would happen. And he wasn't a mustache trilling villain. And I think that's what made him different than most of them. Cool. So you went three three point five for perpetrators. I did. Um, I'm surprised myself with this one. I went four point five for perpetrator. I really four point five. I really liked. Jim Browner, I thought he was interesting, I thought he was complex, and I really liked Sarah Cushing. I thought her um, 
her boldness and her selfishness really came out on the page. I thought that the, these guys were two very humans suffering from human appetites and expressing those appetites in the best ways that they could. And yeah, criminal. Sarah wasn't a criminal. She was just a, a really nasty piece of sexualized work. Uh, I thought that was I thought that was cool, and I liked the terrible sister. Yeah, but it, it it makes you think of the stepsisters of Cinderella and fairy tale lore, and the nasty. There's always a nasty one, you know that 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 sticks her head out and, yeah. and makes trouble. And I thought that yeah, okay, trope. You used the word a few moments ago, a bit of a trope. I'd say she's more of the trope maybe than he is. Uh, his complexity. The femme fatale. We're good. Yeah, the femme fatale. But you know what? I went four point five because I didn't feel like. I felt like this was a human story. Um, it was disgusting, and I don't. I'm not going to argue that it was perfect. Like it's it, it's a pretty heated reaction to cut off someone's ears to do a double murder and then to just send them back. I mean, it's funny if he had such passion for her. It, it, like it's like his passion of revenge was more important than his passion of winning back his wife, and that made me think that maybe he really did have passion for this girl but couldn't express it in a marriage or sexualized way and so instead the only way he could show sarah that he wished like he felt trapped like a married man he wanted to do the right thing but he couldn't and so instead of you know trying to win back his wife because he didn't actually have that love he just felt like he needed to show that love he instead emphasized the passion in revenge because that truly was where he wanted to go i think there's some really cool psychological stuff going on in this story i think it's yeah very human you know what and, that's that's just how I read it. You're really shining a light and revealing a lot of more, you know, gold than you know that I kind of found earlier. Now that I think about it, and uh, maybe it's because I just read the story yesterday and I'd have a chance to kind of digest it the way that you did. Um, I think I'm actually going to go to a four on on this case here. Well, I'm not I'm not trying to change your opinion or well, you no, know. but you, but you have, and you, not not out of your own you know persistence to, but more out of just your expressing your viewpoint on these matters in a way that I just I, I just couldn't digest only after reading it yesterday evening. All right, fair enough. That's cool. Um, well, what did you think then on your fresh read of the environments here? The, the environments, I think, were fairly standard. Uh, I gave it a 3.5 when it comes to the environs. The fairground and the, uh, and the stuff at sea was interesting. But it wasn't really well described, and it was a typical kind of thing that we've seen before, you know, where uh, uh, Mrs. Uh, where Miss Cushing lived and whatnot. So I don't really see any changes in locale that really stood out like it would in Silver Blaze, for example. So I, I just gave it three point five. Okay, I How about went, you? I went for a four here. Um, okay, I went for a four. I agree with what you're saying, but um, I, I do disagree a little bit. I felt like. Given the oppressive heat, I felt like environmentally that was really cool too. And um, the beginning of the story, Holmes and Watson in the room, I felt that was really, really good. I'm just going to read this a little bit. Uh, it was a blazing hot day in August. Baker Street was like an oven and the glare of the sunlight upon the yellow brickwork of the houses across the road was painful to the eye. It was hard to believe that these were the same walls which loomed so gloomily through the fogs of winter. Our blinds were half drawn and Holmes carried, uh, lay curled upon the sofa reading and rereading a letter which he had received by the morning post. For myself, my term of service in India had trained me to stand heat better than cold and a thermometer was at 90 was no big hardship. But the morning paper was uninteresting, Parliament had risen, everyone was out of town, and I yearned for the glades of the New Forest or the, sing or the shingle of South Sea. 
A depleted bank account had caused me to postpone my holiday, and as to my companion, neither the country nor the sea presented the slightest attraction to him. He loved to lie in the very center of five millions of people, with his filaments stretching out and running through them, responsive to every little rumor or suspicion or of unsolved crime. Appreciation of nature found no place among his many gifts, and his only change was when he turned his mind from the evildoer of the town to track down his brother of the country. I, I like that description, not just of the heat and the sunshine, because that in itself is just that, heat and sunshine, but of Holmes sitting and basking in this environment like a Dr. Octopus almost, just you know trying to get his tentacles on something to inspire and motivate and encourage his activity. And mm. I think that in terms of the settings, you know, while you're right in what you say, that it's standard and we don't stay in any one place terribly long, we do get um, we do get a couple of different settings. You know, we get the Merseyside, uh, we get Liverpool, we get Croydon, we get the boats in the fairground and, of course, the, the bay itself in which the murder takes place. I, I thought that it was cool to jump around here, even if it was coming to us in an info drop and... I thought that I thought that was cool to jump around, so I enjoyed it as much as I almost as much as I did in the last story, which I gave a four, and I thought it would be a little bit um, discourteous of me not to do the same for this one, so I went for a four. All right, well, Plus, I'll stay with my three point five, but yeah, um, that's, that's cool. But I, I still also think it's it's funny to imagine these um, these gentlemen just kind of sitting around in in the heated streets of Croydon, uh, although admittedly it's a little cooler there than it was in. Um, in Holmes's apartment, but just kind of looking at this cardboard box and sitting out in the sun, and you know, you get the the sun casting its sweat on everyone's brow, and um, the, they're just picking through a box full of human ears. Like I think the environment's it's very ironic, and it's very it's ironic because the the murder is is so grotesque, and I just think it's cool. I, I think it's interesting, but maybe that would have worked anywhere. You it's know. a different contrast, and you know, you know how I mentioned, you know, like the head in the box with Seven and whatnot. Yes. If you remember the last scene of Seven, where the big reveal where the head in the box occurs, it actually happens. The rest of the scenes of the murders in that film you see are in dark, gr- grungy yeah. kind of places, right? But if you recall, that whole scene, the whole reveal at the end, is in the middle of a field in the bright, di- in the mm-hmm. you know, with a bright sky and everything, right? Mm-hmm. And is that contrast I think between the, I guess, the, a a cheerful, uh, relaxed atmosphere versus that of of what the of what is there. You know, the contents of the the box, the 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 grotesquerie, the brutality, um, and yet nature is kind of uh, what's the word uh, oblivious to what you know what man does. You know, mm-hmm. it just does its thing all the time, regardless and. In the light of day, you see the most terrible things. You know what I mean? Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. And earlier, you cited the uh, the speckled band and and you know the box with the snake in the dark room. That's where you would expect to see two human ears hanging out. But instead, we get them here in the summer sun, um, just kind of late summer sun of August. Just these guys sitting outside this neighborhood, just looking at a box of human. It's very weird. It's it, it's it's a disconnect. You know it it. Um, it doesn't get, it doesn't follow from what you would expect from the environment. But it works. So the that, that, that's that's yeah. the great part about it. Yeah, it works. I liked it. I went uh, I went for a four, but you know, it's still not top marks or anything because, like you yeah. said, they're they are sketches at the end of the day. They're not really fully fully come to life in their own steam. But it's good. What about the secondary characters here in the cast? 
the supporting cast, I gave it a four. I found all the characters very interesting in this, and I think this goes into the perpetrator part of me changing the mark, too, because I did have a pretty good score for the supporting cast, and uh, all the Cushing's, the Cushing sisters were fleshed out as best as they could, you know, in a short story uh, limit. And then, you know, and, and, and again, we have our, our perpetrator. And Lestrade, you know, was, was decent in this story, too, very much like he was kind of like a... Uh, a very good rival for Holmes as he was in the noble bachelor. Uh, I feel that all the characters, they played their part in the story well, and they were, they weren't sketched too thinly that, you know, you didn't get a sense of them and you understood them. You understood their motivations, you know, like their tale, like pulled you into, into the story, in my opinion. Yep. I agree with you, but I went for 3.5 here on this one. Hmm. Uh, I went just a half shade lower than you because I liked Lestrade, I liked the, the Cushing sisters, um, f- I felt that there was something kind of conveniently left out with this whole, uh, what's his name, Fairbank? No, what's his name? The guy who... Oh, oh Alec Fairbairn, yeah. Fairbairn, yeah. Like, he's just kind of shoehorned in there as, as an important ingredient to get Mary what she wants. And I just felt like, this guy, he's pretty stupid. Like, and you know, where's his, where's his morality in any of this? Um, I mean, there are millions of other guys that are cheating on or helping women cheat. But, you know, this maybe this he guy... could have used maybe a, like an introduction beforehand as some other mention just mm-hmm. before, you know, like well, he was like told... Sarah's best friend or something like that. Or Well, we are told that he was a man about town and everybody enjoyed him and appreciated him. And even Jim Browner, you know, appreciated his company at the beginning. We, we get that idea. But I mean, at what point, like, you know that the girl you're boning is married to a sailor who's hard as fuck and drinks a lot and is going to beat the shit out of anything he wants to. Why would you maintain a relationship in, under his own roof? Like, it just seems kind of stupid to me. So, yeah. Uh, but that kind of I, behavior as a whole is pretty stupid if you think about it. It is. But again, that just draws draws out their human foibles, I guess. And, and their, you know, the, the body wants what the body wants, right? Not the heart, I guess. Yes. Anyway, uh, yeah, so I went 3.5 on that for supporting cast, which brings my total score to 820. I'm at 20 on that one, and you are at a 19.5. So we are close <laughs> today so far. We are. We are close. Now let's see how we fare together in comparison with uh, The Adventure of the Yellow Face. Well, we're not there yet, Josh. This is uh, musical interlude time, remember? We need to hmm. select. We need to select our music, and uh, once again, I'm offering you two choices, two cardboard boxes, if you will. Um, <laughs> would you like what's in box number one, or would you like what's in box number two? Box number two. Or would you like what's in box number three? There is a box number three here. Wow. Uh, sorry, I just forgot that there was until I looked at my playlist. I had to scroll down the screen to see. Well, in that case then, because I was denied the first time, box number three it is. Box number three, okay. Another song about infidelity, though a little jumpier. Part-Time Lover by Stevie Wonder. Oh, 
okay, I think you get the idea, but I let that run on a bit. I let that run on a bit because it is just a great tune. It is a good tune. So yeah, part-time lover, Stevie Wonder. Um, perhaps not the finest representation of the adventure of the cardboard box, but <laughs> nevertheless, uh, a good one. 